Podcasting, the remarkably crowded frontier. These are the conversations of two brothers and their mom. Their 13-episode mission to explore strange old movies, to seek out new bits and new jokes, to boldly go where no mom has gone before. Hello and welcome to Where No Mom Has Gone Before, a Night Shift Radio original. The Star Trek podcast where two brothers and their mother are going through every single Star Trek movie ever made. Which, by the way, uh, before we move any further, we're going to have another episode beyond the episodes we know we're recording. Did you hear that Paramount announced a new Star Trek movie for 2023? I did see that. I sent you a text. (laughs) <laughs> I missed the text, but hey, uh, so now we got uh, 13 to do. My text was the thing, and then, oh, no, not another one. <laughs> as long as they keep Tarantino away from it. Uh, yeah, I don't need any of my Star Trek characters calling each other the N-word. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Thank you very much. Why is this entire species just feet? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I'm Captain Casey Ryan. With me, my XO and commander... Colin Ryan. And once again, Admiral on the Bridge, we have our mother, Laura Ryan. Yay! Third episode. We're halfway through the original Trek movies. You know, I gotta say, this, you know, there there was the old adage when we were growing up, Colin, that the odd-numbered movies were not the good movies in the original Trek series. That was a conventional wisdom. I'm going to have to hard disagree with this movie. I think the problem is, not problem, I think why people think this is a bad movie is because it's stuck between two really solid, great Star Trek movies that it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's a good movie. It's just kind of the glue that's that connects us from uh, Wrath of Khan to Voyage Home. Yeah, I think there's a lot to like about this movie. I think it, there there are some things that make it not as strong as, as Wrath of Khan or mm-hmm. Voyage Home. Uh, and we'll talk about that as we get through it. But I had a great time watching it. Like, it's a it's a completely in- enjoyable film. Mom, what did you think? I liked it. You've seen it before, I'm sure, right? Yeah, but I've seen it three times in the last two weeks. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, I really liked it. But before re-watching it, it wasn't one that was, that was like, you had seen in a lot of years, right? I haven't seen it in a lot of years. And to be honest with you, the one that stuck in my mind of all of them was Four. Yeah. Oh sure, the one coming I, up because it was you know. It, yeah. But I I went when I watched it the first time of the three times I remembered a lot of it. There wasn't anything that happened that I, I mean there were lines which I want to discuss a couple of the lines that, sure. that I've missed. But whole you know the planet exploding and that god awful dog. <laughs> uh, that's a targ. Yeah, thank you very a, much. A, a targ. Whatever it is, it's a Klingon it's dog. Disgusting. It's disgusting. That is never ever looks like that. The rest of Star Trek canon. I think the only other time we see an actual targ is next gen when all that hallucinations are happening mm-hmm. and Worf sees one and it's just a pig with some uh, extra horns on its head. I'm like, that's not a targ. Well, if a targ is the Klingon equivalent of a dog, does an Irish wolfhound look like a toy poodle? It does not. So there so you go. You have, you have many, many of breeds of do- of targ. So targ is just their word for dog. Got it. Who who do you? What species do you think is going? What breed is going to win at the uh, Westminster Targ Show this year? 
<laughs> well, it's so, got to be the one from this. I mean, this is the yeah. North uh, North uh, uh, the, Island tar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Kronos Red. Um, <laughs> th- I think this is the first of, of the sequels that was clearly set up in some level in the previous movie. Mm-hmm. And this is where we're, it's really starting to roll as a franchise. And I think we'll talk more about why this happened. But I do think that Harv Bennett, who who is the credited writer for this, he said that um, what he did was start with Spock comes back and then work backwards. Smart. Smart. But I do think that the fact that that is how the film was written is what leads to some of the things that make it not work as well is that you, you, you when you write backwards from a from a result you you sometimes have to let go of some uh logic but mm-hmm. um the the film does not have a significantly higher budget than its predecessor uh it was a budget of 16 million dollars so still a fraction of the 40 million dollars that the first film made uh yeah. cost uh, anybody guess on box office for this film? Uh, I, th- I thought I saw like in the 80s. $87 million. Which is why we got three more. <laughs> yeah. This is when, you know, the idea of there being a franchise becomes a, a, a given, you know? Yeah, definitely. Other interesting part of development is, of course, this is when Leonard Nimoy steps behind the camera for the first time. He had directed... Um, you know, plays and television episodes before, but this is his feature film debut. Man, does he swing for the fences with some of this stuff? Oh, sure. It's, it's general. It's generally, you know, all many parties have agreed in their retellings that that directing this film was a condition of his returning to the role. Sure, he directed from a script by Harv Bennett, who is at this point running the franchise. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing that I was unaware of, and makes a ton of sense when you watch the movie. The original version of this script, the main antagonists were not Klingons. They were Romulans. They were Romulans. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things were left with, they just sort of find, replace Klingon for Romulan. So this is where you, why you get Klingon Bird of Prey, which was always a Romulan ship in the um, original series. Though canonically... The Romulans and the Klingons have worked together before. I can't remember who gave the other race uh, the cloaking technology, but only one created it, and then they had like a treaty for a while, and that's why they both have it canonically. Yes, yes, that that is uh, it pretty. I think that might be the third season episode, the Enterprise incident, but I could be wrong. Okay, but I think that this is where you start to get the franchise's idea of Klingons. You get Klingons talking about honor mm-hmm. and things that they didn't, you know. Um, you know, the, my memory of the original series, and I, Mom, do you feel like this this tracks with what you might have felt watching it more in the height of the Cold War? Was that if there was a metaphor here? And sorry, Mom, it's a metaphor, but the you know the mm-hmm. Klingons the Klingons were were the Russians, one hundred percent, and the Romulans, but the Romulans were communist China. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a certain level of Orientalism and they were the honorable villains, whereas the Russians were more wily and, you know, and I think that that, that idea of an honorable warrior race really kind of comes out of, strangely enough, this choice to just go, oh, we're not going to do Romulus, we're going to do Klingons. <laughs> and then and it builds from there and you get you get, you know, some of the 
what things that people love most about the franchise is these visions of the Klingons. Yeah, and that's why, like, all through the original series and even in Star Trek The Motion Picture, all the Klingon ships are, like, a flat uh, gray mat, and this has the, the bird painted on it, much like the Romulan Warbird in original Trek. So I thought it was really interesting that, like, I didn't know that until doing research for this movie. And as soon as I read that, I went, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And speaking of pre-production and Klingons, mm. the one the one almost cast that I found for this, which is very interesting, was Kruge, the mm-hmm. Klingon commander, played by Christopher Lloyd at the height of his Reverend Jim fame and about <laughs> 11 months before... Back to the Future made him even more famous. Yep. Um, so Nimoy really wanted to cast in that role Edward James Olmos. Yeah. Oh, I did read that. And, you know, uh, if you really are a fan of EJO, uh, I highly recommend listening to the Set Condition One podcast here on the Night Shift Radio Network. Caleb Kitsy and Andrea have gone through, by this point, uh, by the time this episode is out, they should be done with the series of the 2005 remake Battlestar Galactica. So you have a whole back catalog of all the episodes, including the TV movies, for you to be able to listen to. It's really enjoyable. They have a great banter with each other. And uh, you can find that wherever you catch your pod. When you say EJO, it just makes me think of Electric Light Orchestra. <laughs> so close. And One e- letter off. ELO. No. <laughs> well, Mom, I saw you nodding, and uh, I, as this is, of course, a visual medium, I'm sure the audience at home did as well. Uh, <laughs> but it seems like it seems like you think Edward James almost. <laughs> yeah, also a visual medium. I see that visual very clearly. Oh boy, um, mother. <laughs> Yeah, no swearing on the podcast, but gestures are permitted, apparently. Technically, you swore in sign language. <laughs> oh, yes. So, Bob, do you, can you, could you have seen uh, Edward James almost? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah? I didn't enjoy it. Not everybody does. Lloyd. It's as this, as this. I didn't. I, he's just. But that's a clean like it's, fun, it's funny you say that because my I remember um, that he was in it, of course, and I think I was expecting him to be in, in upon a rewatch after at least ten years to be a lot bigger. And I remember going, "Oh, he, he's actually pretty restrained until you know until the end." What's that one that he yells? There's one line I remember it today, but I forgot to write. Get it. out! Get out of there! No, 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 no. The one of it. About shooting. I've forgotten which. It's after that. Oh. It's not important. But I think almost would have had to have been a really different. Uh, yeah. You know, he's a terrific. Now, Mom, you have you seen Battlestar Galactica? I don't think so. If I oh, did, I, I did You got It's so oh, good. Know, he's I so know. good in it. There's only so much TV I can watch. And right now it's Yankee season. So what am I going to do? Well, when Yankee season is over. <laughs> Well, you know, George Steinbrenner really wanted Edward James almost to play for the Yankees. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. What I'm kind of interested in is is I wonder if if he was ever approached for any other track or or not. Because I could have seen him I mean he that's a guy who well, obviously because he kind of played he he was a a fleet commander in in Battlestar. I think he could have been a captain. Fleet Admiral, thank you very much. Yes. Admiral yeah. Adama. Well, uh, for most of the series, yes. Um, well. Yeah. <laughs> He's always an admiral in my heart. 
Yeah. So other than Robin Curtis taking over for Kirstie Alley, who declined to return, you know, at, at this point we have mostly the original cast, and and Merritt Buttrick returns in the role of David. Um, so we have now returning guest characters as this the new sort of universe is being created uh, out of the films. Mm-hmm. One more thing about Edward James Olmos. Uh, I think his Klingon would have been in line with Christopher Plummer's. Well, I, I, you know, one thing I've, I was noticed here is I don't feel like Kruj is acting as an official... Oh, no, he's totally... He's he's a he's gone rogue here. Like he he does not have the backing of of his government. He's there's a line in in the movie that alludes yeah. to that. Yeah, but they, he says that our, they're they're negotiating a peace and we're going to control the world. Yeah, they're definitely right. extremists. One hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I think I I don't know if a, a more cold and calculating like. Um, what Plummer will do in a few movies with Chang would have worked as well as somebody who is a little bit unhinged. Yeah. You know? But... Good point. See it from Cruz's perspective. The Federation has created the most powerful weapon ever, detonated it without... You know, he's not acting irrationally in his belief that, no. you know, that he's... You know, anyway. Are you trying to say Cruz was right? <laughs> I'm not saying that. No. Um, but we should. We, why? Uh, w- is this a good time to start digging into the plot? Yes, absolutely. Let's uh, start the transmission. The Federation Starship Enterprise returns to Earth following a battle with the superhuman Khan Nguyen Singh, mm-hmm. who tried to destroy the Enterprise by detonating an experimental terraforming device known as. Genesis. Remember last episode I mentioned that the Enterprise looks a lot more worse for wear in this one? Did anyone else catch it with these so close to watching two and three together? No, I, I, you know, I remember you saying that and I did not. Um... Oh, yeah, it's, it's way more beaten up in this movie. It's like, did you, did you scuffle with some Romulans along the way? What happened well, yeah, here? Well, you can see on the outside shots, you can see where it is. Yeah, but and it's and you can, so... And, yeah, the the doors the the doors from the what's his face are still black. Mm-hmm. On the bridge, yep. On the bridge, and I didn't notice anything else. But that's the two things. Just the I outside, noticed. like if you remember, they shoot the side of the Enterprise and then one nacelle, and like both sides are scored, and there's a bunch of damage to the the saucer section. I think it's that way for what is going to happen at the end of the film. I think it's kind of giving us the clue that. Uh, this old girl's getting long in its years. We actually get the timestamp of how old it is in yeah. this movie. The Enterprise is 20 years old. Which doesn't necessarily jibe with the fact that it had at least two commanders ahead of Kirk, but that's fine. <laughs> they're really, they're really well, referencing the fact that the franchise is 20 years old at this point. Right. Well, Christopher wasn't Captain Enterprise for very long. <laughs> but it was Robert April before that. I know. Yeah, but how long was he captain? Well, presumably, one might think two five-year missions, but anyway. The casualties of the fight include Admiral James T. Kirk's Vulcan friend, Spock, whose casket was launched into space and eventually landed on the planet created by the Genesis device. Upon arriving at Earth's space dock, Dr. Leonard McCoy begins to act strangely and is detained. 
The commander of Starfleet, Admiral Morrow, visits the Enterprise and informs the crew the ship is to be decommissioned. The crew is instructed not to speak about Genesis due to political fallout over the device. I do have to quibble with this with the person who is uh, doing this. Uh, not you reading it, Mom, but the person who wrote this. They do. They say that uh, McCoy begins acting strangely upon arriving at Earth. He does act. There is that great scene that I want to talk about where he acts strangely on the ship when he bra- breaks into Spock's quarters. Man, that's a great scene. Well. Look, I mean, I don't think you're going to find me not gushing about DeForest Kelly throughout the run of this whole podcast, but he's he's great in this movie. He's so he gets, good. He gets a really meaty thing to play, and it, you know, I think he's a very... He's a very good actor, and it just really works. Yeah. Also, um, I had mentioned last episode that we'll see the uh, security guards' outfits. We all clocked them in this movie, right? And how... Absolutely ridiculous they look. If I they was, look like space balls. Hundred <laughs> percent. They look like space. I, yes. I mean, if I was like a mercenary or a pirate, a space pirate or something, and I boarded a Federation ship and saw that, I'd just start giggling and just I'd be like, I, I'm putting down my weapon. This is too silly. I'm, I'm. I like the brown grapes on their head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they look like fruit of the loom. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. When the alarm is going off in Spock's quarters and it's uh, blinking on the screen, did you see that the Enterprise is technically listed as a heavy cruiser? Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't see that. Constitution class is a heavy cruiser, huh? Okay. David Marcus, Merrick Bertrick, Kirk's son, and a key scientist in Genesis's development, and Lieutenant Savick, Robin Curtis are investigating the Genesis plant on board the science vessel Grissom. I'm always going to talk about starship design. It's one of my favorite things with Star Trek. I hate this design. I think the USS Grissom is one of the ugliest ships ever to come out of Star Trek. I miss a deflector shield. The, and how I think do you having get to that... the lower decks? Oh yeah, that is a little. Yeah, you're sort of like <laughs> how do you? How do you? Yeah, how do you get to the bottom half of your ship? You get, who it's, you get who it's named after. Yeah. The, the, yeah, uh, the, the astronaut. Gus, Gus Grissom. Gus. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Trying to think if this is one of the first times that they do that, where a ship is named more after a, a person. You know, so you've got, you've got things like Enterprise and Reliant, which is a very British tradition to sort of have Enterprise and Liberty and Constitution and reliant and things like that, but naming it after a person. And this becomes a thing that they do, I think, a lot more in Star Trek where you'll get um, ships that are named after, you know, uh, and and they like to do ones where it will be named after somebody more contemporary. Well, there's the Galileo, uh, which was a um, shuttle shuttlecraft. Mm -hmm. So that's, there's that. And in Star Trek discovery and in honor of the late Aaron Eisenberg, uh, there was a USS Nog. There is. That was that was nice. It was very nice of them to do that. Um, one, I, we we kind of jumped over uh, Admiral Morrow and his scene where he tells everybody they're decommissioned. Yeah, I love Admiral Morrow played by uh, you know just a classic. It's that guy um, actor Robert Hooks, mm-hmm. who is also a prolific theater actor and uh, political activist. But his circa 1983 look here, complete with that mustache, it's just so 
stern police captain. <laughs> right? Everything about him is not admiral. It is stern police captain. Well, no, I mean, he's, that's, that, that, he's playing an admiral, but it's just, it's, 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 for me, it's somehow this movie felt more of the 80s mm-hmm. to me than when we rewatched Wrath of Khan. Um, yeah. And it just, it felt, I very much felt that 80s-ness of it. Especially in the scene in the officer's lounge between Kirk and um, yeah. the Admiral in a little bit. That Admiral jacket that he's wearing there, first of all, I would like to own one of those, please. That is very sharp looking. But also, I'm like, oh, it's the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> the, high, the high cut on it, everything about And it's what um, James Doohan wears for most of the movie, too. Oh yeah, that yeah, yeah, right. That suede. Like I'm like, oh, it's an admiral's jacket. Oh, a commander has one. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they're gonna make him a captain. Yeah, that's, that's Scotty, a good point, yeah, Mom. Sure, he'll eventually come offer captain. him. Well, no, but he's offered the position of captain of engineering, which would be uh, a significant bump in rank. And, oh, would he become a captain at that point? So, captain of engineering would mean would I believe mean yeah he would be offered you know. He would be rank of captain. He would still be subordinate to whoever is the ship's captain. And he would be chief, en- but he it would be higher up than chief engineer. Yeah, I think his title would be captain of engineer. He would functionally be the chief engineer. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm guessing that it might the idea might be because that's an experimental ship. It's a higher position than a chief engineer. You need somebody who can do more experimental theoretical things. Sure. I mean, it's a it's a prototype. It's an NX, which is. In Star Trek canon, it right. stands for uh, experimental ships. Well done, Val Chris. Well, by this point, I feel like we have kind of skipped over meeting the Klingons for the first time. One thing I just wanted to note that was real. Two things I wanted to note. Sure. I think this is the first time we meet a Klingon woman that outside the original series. So after, post Ridges. <laughs> they definitely feel like they're soft pedaling the Ridges in order to keep a certain amount of conventional attractiveness. Yeah, that'll all go away when we meet the Dura sisters. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a fluctuation in how how prominent Klingon female ridges will wind up being throughout <laughs> the whole franchise. Um, but one thing I noticed that was really cool was the Klingon scenes begin in Klingon mm-hmm. with um, the Klingon language as developed by Mark Alcorn. But when the Klingon officers speak to each other. The, the, the few we get to know, Kruge, um, Maltz, a few others, they speak English to each other, mm-hmm. or what is standard. If the Klingons are the Russians, right, in the Imperial Russian Navy and in the Russian um, Army, not in the Soviet era, but in sort of a Tsarist Russia, traditionally uh, high-ranking officers spoke French amongst themselves. Russian to the to the lower orders, French amongst themselves, as as did Russian nobility generally speak French amongst themselves. And so I just wondered if that was was the most common language. It was. It was the lingua franca. Yeah, of course. Um, But that tradition continued. Obviously, it's there at least partially to facilitate not having to have the the actors do Klingon all the time. (laughs) But I do wonder if it was a little bit of a nod to that. You know, for me, it just it sometimes when people do that in a movie, you go, well, wait, why aren't they speaking their own language? But here it seems because they took the time to have them speak Klingon to the people driving the ship, the, you know, the junior, 
the junior staff and then have amongst the officers speak English. I, I just went, oh, that's like the Russians. That's really cool. In code to Starfleet. Captain Spock's tube located on Genesis' surface. Discovering an unexpected life form on the surface, Marcus and Savick transport to the planet. They find that the Genesis device has resurrected Spock in the form of a child, although his mind is not present. Marcus admits that he used unstable mm. protomatter in the development of the Genesis device, causing Spock to age rapidly and meaning the plant planet will be destroyed within hours. So at one point around the time where they're like, he's aging and, and we need to get him off this planet. I wonder if there was ever any kind of talk of making Spock younger and just recasting. I, I suspect that that might have been discussed before when they knew they wanted a sequel, but they hadn't quite uh, nailed down that uh, Nimoy, Nimoy was, was coming, coming back. back. Right. Because you could just have young Spock, same, you know, and, and oh, that that poor bastard. Yeah, you, a, wouldn't uh, wanna, you wouldn't want to be that actor. would have. I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm so good. No, it's... Um, <laughs> So the the proto matter is really interesting. It's you know it's a little bit of a. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things I'm talking about with working backwards. Is that you? I think they also really felt like they needed to clear the deck and not not have the Genesis device work. Right, work on its own. It needed something. It, it didn't work in the theory that it did in because if, Wrath of because Khan. it, it, just it was just too and too, too big a genie to let out of the bottle into that universe. That we can terraform right. in twenty minutes a whole planet. I don't know. I think that I'm wondering if that's also there to soften again, much like the Enterprise being more beat up. I wonder if that's there to soften the blow of what's going to happen to David mm-hmm. in the end of this right. film. But not not even I mean, yet. But yeah, he's, um, yeah. We'll we'll talk about that scene in a minute. That was um, this is also the point where I wrote the note. This movie is twenty percent the Wrath of Khan. Oh, they just keep showing scenes from the Wrath of Khan. Yes, they wind up doing that thing. I I kind of love when movies do. It's like, oh, let's uh, let's look at what the security recorders had. Oh, look, the security recorders had the exact view we had in the movie. <laughs> yep. Like when it closes, when like when it, it follows uh, Spock and yeah, McCoy the security can down can, when they fall. I'm like, wait, oh, the security on. camera's <laughs> on a steady cam. Interesting. <laughs> Good for them. In the same franchise, the one that's the most guilty of that is Encounter at Farpoint, when Riker is not in the first half of the TV movie, essentially, and when he shows up, they're just like, yeah, sit here and watch this, and then they just show a 15 to 25 second oh, montage I don't remember that. of the first half of Encounter at Farpoint. I'm like, can we watch this? It just happened. To fully understand the events on which I report, it is necessary to review the theoretical data on the Genesis device. Meanwhile, Kruge, Christopher Lloyd, the commander of a Klingon vessel, intercepts information about Genesis. Recognizing the device's potential as an ultimate weapon, he takes his cloaked ship to the Genesis planet, destroys the Grissom, and searches the planet for survivors. Uh, yeah, right. Lucky shot. <laughs> you, that poor <laughs> Clint. Now, <laughs> go ahead. What, what, what's, that was so what, funny. For, for, for those who so haven't rewatched this recently, say what was funny, Mom. When he goes, I want a prisoner. Lucky shot. You're dead. Which, which uh, 
calls back uh, uh, Spaceballs. Oh, right. Careful, you idiot. I said across her nose, not up it. Sorry, sir. Doing my best. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I think we talked about how this movie, though we we really enjoyed it, it maybe does isn't as successful as two and four. I think what really works in this movie is the comedy, even when it is sort of the dark comedy of Cruise offing his gunner, you know. Um, and then the next gunner says something, and he, he says, Sir, may I suggest? Say the wrong thing, Torg. If it's prisoners you want, there are life signs on the planet. Now, we didn't. We usually ask this, and we forgot to. Do you do you remember? Did you see this movie in the theaters? Or I don't remember. I'm just wondering. Did you did you watch Taxi? The, the the thing on TV? Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. So when you see Christopher Lloyd in this, do you just do you see you know uh, Reverend Jim with ridges or like? Or is that not your strongest association for Christopher Lloyd? No, my strongest association with Christopher Lloyd is the future. Back, Back to the, the future. future. Okay. Yeah. Doc Brown. I see Doc Brown with ridges. And, yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, also in that for me is uh, Judge Doom mm-hmm. from Who <laughs> Framed right. Rabbit, or as I like to call it, the character that scared the crap yeah. out of me. <laughs> He was terrifying in that movie. Grissom's captain is named Esteban, which I believe is the first non, like European Anglo-Saxon name we've yeah. gotten for a captain. Mm-hmm. They didn't cast, as far as I can tell, a actor of any kind of Latino origin. But no, they left that for the communications officer. That literally, if you watch this on, uh, it may still be available by the time this episode comes out, but. We're recording this mid-April. Uh, Amazon, if you pause it, it gives you the the IMDb links for every actor on the screen and who they played. And Com and commu- Communication and Helm, their titles are just Communication and Helm. They didn't even bother mm-hmm. giving those actors just silly well, names. Mr. Adventure like, oh. also. Yeah, Mr. Oh, well, we'll wait on that. We'll wait on but Mr. They're, they're setting aside the fact that the actor is not somebody who might have the name Esteban. Uh, there is a general sense of, uh, I think there's an increase in diversity in Starfleet personnel that, that is starting to be something you see happening in the casting a little better than some of the earlier. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the original series was at the forefront of that, but they're really starting to think that way. What do we think of Captain Esteban? Because I personally think he's a moron. He's not supposed to be a good captain. Okay, he's a terrible captain. He keeps being like, Captain's prerogative, Captain's prerogative. And then like, hey, we found Spock. He's alive. Oh, well, I got to call Starfleet. No, well, but I what? think, but just found- again, see it from his perspective. The people who want to go down to this planet are the son of the guy who blew up the thing that created this planet well but does esteban know that Mar- uh, that his last name is marcus okay then it's that just the guy who created the bomb that blew up and made this yeah. credit okay. and then somebody who was there when it happened yeah. like and they obvious that savik and and david are personally involved in this and he's going look it's my mm-hmm. ass i'm the captain you know he wants to play it safe and i don't necessarily blame him on that but he's and look where he got it got him. him. Shot, <laughs> shot by a Klingon, yeah. <laughs> he exploded. Do we end up at the bar next? Is that what the next thing on your... Uh, Doesn't say the bar is after the, the next. The next is, Mom. On Genesis, the Klingons capture Marcus, Savick, and Spock. Right. And before crew... Oh, no, 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 no. You skipped... You sk- go, go back. You're skipping the previous paragraph you didn't do yet. Oh, well, darn. Hold on. 
intercepts and blah, blah, blah. Okay, Spock's father, Sarak, Mark Leonard, confronts Kirk about his son's death. The pair learned that before he died, Spock transferred his katra, or living spirit, to McCoy. Spock's katra and body are needed to lay him to rest on his home world, Vulcan. And without help, McCoy will die from carrying it. Now, I want to talk about this scene. Before you get into it, because I, I know you want to get into the actor side of it, um, I still love Kirk's San Francisco I love, I love Kirk's apartment, and I hate Kirk's jumpsuit. <laughs> That's where it's going next. Every, Kurt's, Kurt's everyone looks so 80s in this moment. Oh, now look, Star Trek has a long and really up and down history with showing civilian clothes of the future. Now, there have been some uniforms that have been better than others, but, you know, generally they've been pretty snazzy. Civilian clothes of the future? There are some real doozies in here. Um, what and about I, the, the go-to for Riker? That blue fold over with the almost cummerbund material. I'm just like, yeah. what are we doing? But in this scene, that tracksuit thing that, that he's wearing is quite something. I think it's so funny because he eventually changes. And, you know, by the time they all, the back half of this movie, they're, they're going to wear all those costumes for the whole next movie. And how happy do you think Shatner was? He wasn't still, you know, looking like he was out for a jog. <laughs> right? He's like, oh, maybe that was Shatner. Maybe he saw that. He goes, okay, I'm going to need you to build me something for the rest of this mm-hmm. movie. This is stupid. <laughs> well, I like Uhura's necklace. Oh, my yes. God. That necklace was fantastic. Yeah. And I did, I did not like uh, Sulu's Cape jacket. Love the cape jacket. I love the cape jacket. Wait a minute. This oh, is geez. this is George Takei. I think he was supposed to wear it arms in sleeves, and George's like, no, thank you. I'm going to wear it over my shoulders. No, no, because I don't think it has sleeves. It's like slashed. Oh man! Yeah. It's, it's, don't it's, forget Sulu's a swashbuckler. Literally, I think it's I think it's that swashbuckly thing. Yeah, I think it works. It's pretty. I, I mean, I, I, it's fantastic. He, he comes out of the costumes in that moment the most. Unscathed. He, he now, looks I will, awesome. I will freely admit that it's entirely possible that I'm back projecting from Voyage Home because they wear those same clothes all the way. And if it's anything they wore in Voyage Home, I'm like, uh, yeah, it works. But <laughs> oof, oof, yeah. that tracksuit. The only two that aren't wearing uh, those civilian clothes in Voyage Home, I believe, are Scotty. Because Scotty is wearing his uh, leather, his suede bomber. And yeah. uh, Uhura is in Starfleet uniform because when they go to Vulcan in the end of this, she's in her uniform. Yes. Oh yeah, she is. Yep. Well, she's in her uniform for most of the movie. She, she's just in. She's just in civilians for this one scene. The rest of the movie, she scene, is yeah. in her uh, Starfleet uniform. We we also get in this scene the literary allusion and quotation is dialed way down. From Wrath of Khan, but we still get a little bit of John Milton, Those Who Stand and Wait, which is a reference to the last line of uh, his poem, On His Blindness, uh, They Also Serve Who Only Stand and Wait. Mm -hmm. Was the Jedi cloaks part of the uh, Vulcan costumes on the original series? Because when Mark Leonard walked through that door, I just wanted him to pull down the hood and be like, I'm terribly sorry. I am in the complete wrong franchise right now. I would have to go back and watch a mock time or yesteryear. Uh, I know he wears kind of like a Nehru jacket in uh, Journey to Babel, which is the only other time we meet 
uh, yeah. live action Sarek before this. But, you know, that robe is, it's Spock's robe from motion picture. That's where the, That's the where we sort started of getting monk, yeah. monk robes and, and, and real heavily into the sort of mysticism side of the, the... Yeah, this is almost a revamp for the Vulcans. Well, I mean, gosh, Mark Leonard is just so great, isn't he? Oh, my God, he's so good. He really, he really is, if I recall correctly, he and Nimoy are essentially the same age. Right, yep. <laughs> playing his father, but uh, that's one of the best scenes in the movie is his his mind meld with Kirk and his scene with Kirk. Uh, had they not established my thoughts to your thoughts, my mind to your mind, as I'm, the yeah, no, that's been used. He does say that, doesn't he? No, he does. I was I was waiting for it. I was like, hang on, where's the? Oh, he doesn't. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, maybe he just forgot. And the scene was going so well, they just let it pass. <laughs> if we're looking for headcanon, uh, Sarek doesn't need the words anymore. He's he can do it. He's so good at this. Old, yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. My question on that scene yeah. is, in the mind mail with Spock's father, does Jim see the death scene all over? Sure does. Mm-hmm. Probably, and yeah. That must have been extremely painful. That's, yeah. why, that's why he says at the end, forgive me, to Kirk. Why Sarek says that is because he's like, ah... I'm going to put, and we know this from um, the fantastic Next Generation episode, Sarek, where mm. Sarek pretty much is like uh, losing his mind and he puts all of his emotion and his Katra almost into Picard. And there is this one shot tracking from left to right of Patrick Stewart where you see every human emotion possible mm. go across Picard. And it's, yeah. Just find that scene if you have never watched uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, if you're just a Star Trek fan. And my goodness, Patrick Stewart, what an actor he is. Yeah, it's I, I do think you're right, Mom. I think that he – it, and I think it, overall there's the, the first third or so, what they call act one of this movie, you know, there's a real sense that this – this is a very raw wound for Kirk. I like that. Okay. Um, that was one of the things that I was um, – I was talking to Casey about earlier that there are two things that Kirk says mm. where he's saying... USS Enterprise, Captain's personal log. With most of our battle damage repaired, we're almost home. Yet, I feel uneasy, and I wonder why. Perhaps it is the emptiness of this vessel. Most of our trainee crew have been reassigned, and Enterprise feels like a house with all the children gone. The death of Spock is like an open wound. And then when the young cat comes up and says, Are they planning a ceremony when we get in? A hero's welcome, Sean, is that what you like? And he goes, Oh, God knows I should be. This time we've paid for the party with our dearest blood. To, to me, those are two very, very powerful, well, one's the, the two lines, but the other one. What he's going through there is just, I think we really finally see just what Spock means to Kirk. Right, yeah. And I don't think even Kirk knew yeah. What Spock meant to him until this. That's a good point. Heading towards the end now, not that we're going to not talk about the rest of the film, but the uh, Kirk drift. I think this is really where Kirk drift comes in. He's going yeah. against orders hard mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah, we will talk about that because I think you're right. This is a big origin point of that image of Kirk. And but I think right. that that's, makes perfect sense. He's a man grieving. You're right, Mom. I do think that... That they they do a great job of with the, those two pieces of writing you quoted and and Chatner's performance of of really showing where he is in a stage of grief. And I've read some people kind of complaining about that undoing the sort of more hopeful. I feel young 
ending of Wrath of Khan. And I just feel like people who feel that way, have you not been through grief? It's it's about ups and downs and cycles. And it it, it doesn't, it's not one thing, right? You, yeah. you can go to bed one night saying, I've made my peace with this terrible thing that's happened. And the next morning be all back in it again. And even uh, more specifically for this movie, they've just had his funeral. It feels like closure. Mm -hmm. And then they have, you know, it doesn't seem like the Enterprise has full warp capability to get home. Feels like it's a long trip home. Yeah. Kirk has all this time to just kind of sit around and go, there's no Spock. Right. It's a good point, Casey. It's, It's that it's that you have the very healing closure of a funeral but then you have to go back to work the next day. Mm-hmm. And then well, you, you have, have to go come home to the house. house. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, yeah. And I think that's that's definitely where we're at. Just a quick little note, and I, I apologize. I have to look up the actor's name, but I did remember reading that the that young actor who says, oh, are they going to have a reception for us? Mm-hmm. He, I think, has gone on to do a few other Star Trek things, but his father was on Mission Impossible with Nimoy. Oh, yeah. Wasn't he on the Cosby show? Wasn't Possibly, he yeah. one of the, the not, not, I've forgotten. I, I have uh, data dumped all of the Cosby show. <laughs> Are you thinking of um, somebody's, of, somebody's uh, husband, boyfriend, no, husband? No, you're thinking of, I know exactly who you're thinking of because uh, he is an actor I've, I've actually worked with. Oh, really? Uh, J- are you thinking of Jeffrey Owens, who played um, the eldest daughter's husband? I've actually worked with with Jeffrey Owens. He's a really nice guy. Uh, I've done a couple of uh, Shakespeare readings with him. Nice. Yeah, yeah. He was the Bolingbroke to my Richard II, a part I'll never play in real life, but it was really fun to do in a reading. <laughs> he lives right here, and then we did a, we did a, a thing where we did um, Shakespeare snippets with uh, the Montclair Orchestra, Oh, and nice. uh, and they were doing they were playing like they were playing Prokofiev Romeo and Juliet and then some people did Romeo and Juliet they did some uh, Midsummer Night's Dream uh, you know Mendelssohn and we did some Midsummer Night's Dream you know cool you can cut all that <laughs> maybe can we talk about the bar yeah the bar is a f- delightful scene, scene. yeah uh, it's fun. we get a triple which uh, tribbles. Co- Colin, you know how are those tribbles there? We know the canon of what happened to the tribbles. Oh, do you, you, do you not you remember? Don't think, you don't think there's more tribbles? Uh, no, the Klingons wiped them all from existence. They found them to be their mortal enemy. No, there's still tribbles. No, that's what Worf says because there's no tribbles in Next Generation or anything. The Klingons took a personal war against the triples and killed them all. <laughs> There's like 60 years for that still to happen from this movie. Uh, that's true. That's true. But it, I, I just love that little bit of uh, trivia from um, uh, yeah. Trials and Tribulations. And, yeah, yeah. And Dax must be very proud. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I am kind of in love with the design and also the actor who plays this alien that Bones tries to get the passage to Genesis. Your planet... Welcome. Sometimes Star Trek makeup will not complement the actor, and sometimes they'll build it. All, um, the perfect one I'm thinking of is Mark Alamo, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Goldicott. I mean, he is the basis for 
what Cardassians look like because he was also the first Cardassian in a Next Generation episode. But this guy, like, they probably looked at this guy and went, okay, we can accentuate your ears and put these feather things here because you've got the face for it. It's just it's one of my favorite aliens that I don't think we ever see one like him no, ever probably again. I mean, I'm, so sure there's, I'm sure there's seven novels that have been written about that guy specifically, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But he's great, and um, uh, <laughs> I, I just love the whole uh, when he tries to give the uh, uh, the uh, the um, Vulcan oh, neck yeah. pinch to the uh, Starfleet oh, yeah. uh, security, <laughs> and the guy's just looking at him like, oh boy. That was funny. I believe this the uh, Star Trek security, or it may have come later, but he was one of the definitely one of the people, part of my one note where I just said. There are many mustaches. Oh, God. Yeah. This is 1984 peak mustache time. Like, almost every guy who is in this movie with, like, a, a five-line role has a mustache. Yeah. This is the beginning of uh, mustaches being in, or uh, facial hair being in Starfleet. I guess so. Yeah, I don't think you, I don't think there's a lot of facial hair on on any of the other it yeah, just wasn't and the bone, thing. Bones, Bones shaves his beard. And uh-huh. If I recall correctly, mustaches are in the Navy, United States Navy, mustaches are permitted for officers, and only submariners can grow beards because they don't have, they have water rationing, so they can't shave as often. Right. That but makes that sense. may be, that may be, I'm, that, that's, you know, we should uh, consult. Tom. I have a friend. Who, for, no, I have a friend from college whose husband is in the Navy, who is on oh, well, a submarine. I will, I will oh, message well, her and we'll put that in next episode. But yet, uh, this is another one where DeForest Kelly is just—he's delightful. He's very he's so funny, but he's clearly coming. He's like playing a genuine place of pain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just—it's so good. All right, damn it! It's Genesis. The name of the place we're going is Genesis. Genesis. Yes, Genesis. How can you be deaf with ears like that? Uh, one thing that we I didn't get to see is at the beginning credits, Nimoy is Nimoy is not listed. Not only did they really did they really think that people didn't know he was coming. Not back? only did they not list it, there is a prominent pause between Shatner and uh, DeForest Kelly's names. In fact, it, the whole screen grows, goes white as the void that Spock has left. Mm. It's really a cool moment. Um, I didn't even notice that. Yes, they did. I think some people wouldn't pay attention to the fact that this damn movie is called The Search for Spock. I also think, much like I said before, I don't think they knew Nimoy was coming back after this one. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm which, glad he did. Which, yeah, because he's wonderful in four. So, yeah, as we were saying, in the bar, DeForest Kelly tries, or uh, Bones tries to give the random mustachioed uh, civilian security guard a uh, Vulcan neck pinch. Does not work. He is promptly arrested. The word, sir, the word is no. I am therefore going anyway. Disobeying orders, Kirk and his officers spring McCoy from detention disable the USS Excelsior, and steal the Enterprise from space dock to return to the Genesis planet to retrieve Spock's body. Here's my question. Okay. I don't remember seeing anywhere 
prior to this scene that they knew that Spock was alive on the Genesis planet. Okay. So why did they go to the Genesis planet and not go to Vulcan, Cut, Vulcan right. to get the Katra? So the original script, which you can still find, the, the shooting script, and this, I think this change was later made in editing, but even when they were shooting, the intention was that the USS Grissom scenes would happen at the very beginning of the film. Hmm. And the voiceover that you quoted from before, Mom, about, you know, Kirk saying, I feel uneasy and I don't know why, was, I feel uneasy having heard about the discovery of Spock's bot tube. Okay. So they would know that the body was there. And okay. that was changed probably to front load the characters that people wanted to spend time with. But it does create a sort of sense of like, okay, you need to get bones to Vulcan to deposit the Katra. I get that. Why do you need to go to Genesis? Why and that and the the it doesn't resolve that. And this is again one of those things when you write backwards from a certain point, you might miss some of this stuff. Easy fix for it. They want to go to Vulcan. They spring Bones, and Bones says, "No, I need to go to Genesis." Why, Bones? I just do. There's something when they realize that he has Spock's Katra. Like Bones is like. I'm being drawn to the planet. Some sort of bizarre psychic link. Right, because McCoy's trying in the bar trying to get to Genesis. Get to Genesis. And That's that right. and that doesn't bother me at all because you we know he has that in his head. So you can oh, he's drawn to it. He's, you mm-hmm. know, that that doesn't feel like a plot hole to me. Kirk just knowing he has to get it and does does and it, you know, it's one of the issues with the film. It doesn't totally undo it for me, but... It's a, uh Excelsior-sized plot hole. <laughs> Captain of the Excelsior, you recognize... Everyone recognizes... Oh, yeah. Captain of the Excelsior, James B. Psyching. Bridge, this is the captain. How can you have a yellow alert in space dust? Didn't you see he and Scotty working together? And not. He was, at the time, still starring on Hill Street Blues. And when we actually get to the Excelsior... When it is the NCC? Did, no, no, no. When In this film, did you recognize... I believe he's actually credited as the first officer, though he's at the helm, which would make sense if it's still... You know, not necessarily a full crew compliment because it's not intended to be out there. It's Miguel Ferrer. It sure is. The wonderful oh, Miguel Ferrer. I miss that. Cousin to George Clooney. Very young Miguel I Ferrer. The late totally Miguel Ferrer, that. sadly. Yeah. I mean, psyching is actually great in the part of, like, the guy you would hate to be a serving under. And what does he have in his hand? He reaches back behind him in the bed and he's sitting with it in his hand in the, the chair. It's like, it's, I think it's, it's like a, a whip. Yeah, it, I think he's, it's supposed to be like, I'm a like, stern kind of captain. Like a, yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's very weird. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what, here's the thing, what makes it a great choice and I kind of wonder if it was an actor's choice or, but it was, it's like, I have no idea what it is yet it seems completely right for the character. And I don't, you know. 100%. <laughs> When they beam to the Enterprise, uh, as I said, I watched this on Amazon. And if you pause, the guy, the young lieutenant that's there with Uhura, backhand compliments her. Peace and quiet appeals to me, lieutenant. Yeah, well, maybe that's okay for someone like you, whose career is winding down. But me, I need some challenge in my life, some adventure, maybe even just a surprise or two. Well, you know what they say, lieutenant. Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. He's listed as Mr. Adventure in the credits. Also, I'm like, oh, poor actor. But it's called, people think it's called the Mr. Adventure scene. But it's so sad that that's what he's listed as. Oh, I, like, I'm sure it's great. It, it could have been adventurous 
lieutenant, <laughs> not Mister Adventure. Now another fun little thing is the is the the rather large man who calls uh, Sulu Tiny. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Don't call me Tiny. You know that that's the that actor was also the actor that Spock nerve pinches in the motion picture when he's stealing the. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's just he's just when he's stealing what when he when he steals the um, the EVA suit and goes out into V'ger in the space suit. That's the same guy, and it's like. Well, of course he doesn't like the crew of the Enterprise. Last time he was there, he got nerve pinched and then transferred <laughs> for letting something in. And now he's like, oh, I have this nice, cushy security job here on the space station. And Oh, my God, I'm getting my ass kicked by Tiny. <laughs> this is everybody's, including probably my favorite sequence, of, you know. And it's actually the music cue in James Horner's score is called Stealing the Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> it is the the whole, like, heist thing. You one thing that that I love about this movie, and it definitely, it definitely has to be a, a Leonard Nimoy thing, um, is this is the this is the first time you really feel like there's an effort to make sure that there's something exciting for everybody in the ensemble. Mm-hmm. You know, the first two movies are about Kirk and Spock and McCoy, and then everybody else is sort of there. Yep. You know, and not that the actors are bad, but they're just so you know, um, with exceptions of things like Scotty's nephew or whatnot, but or but. Here, you know, everybody gets something to do in the heist. Right. And it, and and that you're really starting to get that feeling of ensemble, of spending time with these old friends is is part of what the joy of these movies is, you know. Um, I, I you're speaking of James Horner's score. During this montage, the classic Star Trek theme plays, but in a different key. Mm-hmm. Almost like, hey, we're gonna, you know, we had this by the book crew on the '66 series. They're gonna start bending the rules, and things are gonna get funky. Uh, and I also want to point out no. that uh, Sulu backs the Enterprise out of spaceport. Damn! And then it turns around. <laughs> That's amazing. But they went in forward so that he would have had to back it out. And there's enough room for him to turn it around in there. That's a big spaceport. Well, yeah, but no, they but he just backs it out because he's a what badass. Did he backup cameras. Oh, he he had to have. <laughs> Because they're looking at the, the screen and... Now, Mr. Scott, out the doors, Mr. Scott. Hi, I'm working on it. I totally forgot that Uhura doesn't come along. Apparently, the novelization, which is much beloved as one of the best uh, of the novelizations um, by Vonda McIntyre, is uh, they, they make it much more explicit that she's there to, like, jam signals and screw things up in, in Starfleet. You know, and that, mm-hmm. and, and she actually is staying behind for a reason, and that what she does immediately after that is go to the Vulcan embassy and claim asylum, and that's how she winds up to Vul- on Vulcan, which is I wouldn't yeah. have minded having that fleshed out in the in the film, but I understand why. Well, initially, Nichelle Nichols was upset with how little she had to do, and then she actually read the whole script and was like, "Oh no, I'm I'm perfectly fine with what I." I I like what my character does in yeah. this film. Even she gets so, even, she even gets to hug the, Kirk. She does. That which I thought was very uh, out of character, but that's just me. I, I I do have a note here. WTF is Chekhov wearing that pink oh suit? Oh my lord! Well, he matches the pink chairs on the Grissom. By the way, the the Grissom chairs are yeah, pink, Mom. Yeah, in, in in reality, because it's the Enterprise set, and they were trying to make it look not like the Enterprise <laughs> set. It's the exact same set. They just pink give them pink, just, give them pink chairs. No one will <laughs> just know. like just like the Reliant was the same. Yeah, 
the same bri- yep. same bridges. Um, yeah, that. Oh boy, Walter Kenning doesn't even look comfortable in it. I think he's understands no. that it is not a great looking. Sh- it's so bad. Yeah, it, everything about it is just just bad. Poor guy. I also have a note about you know this is where the synopsis had it earlier, but uh, the proto matter reveal scene between mm. uh, David and Savick. Uh, both those actors really do a great job with that. It's a good scene. It's a very good and, scene. And very good. Was scene. that there was a remark that she made about? So you change the rules. Does that just, just like, like your, your father? father. They're, they're referring back to the Kobe. Kobayashi Maru, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, especially like, I, I mean, this is obviously our first time seeing Robin Curtis play this role, but Merritt seems more relaxed in front of a camera, like in, in search for Spock, he's not, or in uh wrath of Khan, he's not bad, but he's, I am, I am acting and I am in this scene and this is what's happening. And this, he was actually seemed like to be having a conversation and, I think some of this comes down to a thing we're going to talk about a lot. We've talked about in the other two movies of like who has a who has an arc to play and who doesn't. David doesn't mm-hmm. have much of an arc in Wrath of Khan, except he has that. And think about what I think maybe is his best scene in Wrath of Khan. It was just the last one when he sit, comes and visits a grieving Kirk and says, "I'm proud to be your son." You know, right? That, but that's all really the arc he gets. Other than that, he's just kind of there to be like. The military is taking this. This Kirk guy sucks. You know, here he has a whole arc to play. He's gonna. He's excited. His. He's, he's on the planet. You know, his experiment, and now it's falling apart. And now he has to reveal a secret. And now he's gonna redeem himself with a, a hero's death. And so he has this. Mm. And I think there's just more to do there. You know, while we're we're at it, I do want to just point out. I think, you know, and I really noticed it this time through that. Um, Having been a stage actor, uh, gosh, Robin Curtis does that really well here, trying to dial things down for the camera. Her eyes are so alive. And and film acting, they say, is really so much in the eyes. Mm -hmm. She really has reactions that are happening just in the the level of the eye that let her continue to be this Vulcan who is keeping herself, her, her emotions repressed and you see but you see the reactions in a very subtle way and i think it's a it's a it's a really good piece of acting that's also very different than a lot of the other acting in the film it reminds me quite a bit of nimoy which she was talking mm-hmm. about how much she she was willing to put herself in his hands as a director i think we talked about this all the way back in motion picture that he's somebody who can do a lot with a raised eyebrow or one or a cut of the eye. He's a very subtle actor, Leonard Nimoy, and I think she's sort yeah, of. He definitely was. She is inhabiting a lot of that same technique, and it's it's different than some of the other technique in the film, and so it, it stands out. The raising Agreed. of the eyebrow, I thought it was cool when McCoy raised his eyebrow. Right. Yeah. That and when he when they're scanning, and it's it's literally Leonard Nimoy. Indications negative at this time. Saying the line, and they all look at him, and he goes, "Did I get it right? Great bones, just great." The use of of Spock's voice. It happens a couple of times, you know, when when he finds McCoy in yep. the quarters during the mind meld, that scene where he's at the science station. It's a, it's such a simple trick, but it really works so well, partly mm-hmm. because Nimoy's voice is so distinctive. But I'm wondering in that scene in the dark in Spock's quarters going back there, I'm wondering if that's a mixture. Yeah, they might have. I'm not saying layering them, but like 
okay, Nimoy says this part, then DeForest Kelly says this part, then Nimoy, because it, it fluctuates that whole scene. It's not completely clear it's, it's Spock, especially the closer it gets to him whipping him around and having the reveal that it's actually Bones. Which also, how did you not know that that wasn't Spock? Like, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy is a good four inches taller than DeForest Well, he was sitting down. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He was sitting down. Okay, never mind. I've come a long way for the power of Genesis. And what do I find? A weakling human, a Vulcan boy, and a woman. On Genesis, the Klingons capture Marcus, Savak, and Spock. And before Krug can interrogate them, their ship signals that the Enterprise has arrived. Krug beams back to the bird of prey. I just want to say, but we've reached young adult. Uh, Spock here, and I want to say it was awful nice of Eddie Redmayne to hop in a time machine and go back and play young Spock. He looks so much like Eddie Redmayne. It's really wild. (laughs) It's insane. Sure. To the point where I'm like, hey, Eddie Redmayne could play a Vulcan. (laughs) Just as long as he stays away from the Jupiter ascending, I'm going to whisper the line. I've still never seen Jupiter ascending. Uh, That's all I know about it. Is that... He constant all his lines, he'll start by whispering them. And then he'll ah, and it's like, oh, that's stupid. Who told you to act like that? A brand new app is sweeping the globe. It allows you to see dreams from millions of anonymous users. But what do you do when the dreams you see are of your imminent murder? This is the premise for the brand new short film from the crew of the Never Heard of It podcast, and we're seeking your help now to fund our project. Head to Indiegogo.com and search for Somnium Film and contribute what you can. We promise to make a chilling sci-fi film you'll want to watch over and over to uncover all of its secrets. Again, Indiegogo.com and search for Somnium Film. Help us make this movie. The Storyteller series brings you full cast audio productions of short stories. I'm the host. Megs. And each month we'll bring you a brand new story performed by talented voice actors, interviews with great authors, and exclusive print edition stories. Listen wherever you enjoy podcasts. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram at NSR Storyteller or at nightshiftradio.com. The Storyteller series. Old time radio rebooted. I saw in the um, IMDb <laughs> that I think. Robin Curtis has told the story a couple times and a couple other cast members saying that uh, Christopher Lloyd didn't always get that you needed to put a communicator to your face to be able to talk to the ship up there. Sometimes he would just <laughs> yell his lines to the to the quote-unquote sky. It's like, oh, Christopher, no, wait. <laughs> and, and like Nimoy had to remind him, you got to pull out the communicator. It's like a phone. So you can... <laughs> Which great. is just... I, I want to see the outtakes of that because it's be got to be hilarious. They should just do a whole movie of outtakes from all of them it would just be hysterical now you'll see them on dvds and stuff right but actually the idea of cutting together the outtakes like you would see like on a on a as an extra feature that really started as a uh thing that people did it they did at star trek conventions Mm -hmm. one of the things you would see if you went to a star trek convention is they would Put in some bloop, a blooper reel. You'd watch that, and then out would come the, the actors to talk. You know, yeah. So that actually, blo- you say that, mom, but it's funny. Blooper reels are very tied to the history of Star Trek. Yeah. In orbit, the undermanned Enterprise initially gains the upper hand in the battle, but the cl- 
Klingons return fire and disable the ship. I think another reason people say bad things about this movie is that we had such amazing uh, starship fighting in Wrath of Khan, but I like this fight. Like, the science of Sulu and... uh, and Kirk looking at him like, look, there's a distortion, and it must be this, and it's this, it's got to be this. And, you know, I like when Starfleet sciences their way out of a situation in a non-techno babble way. Well, I liked it when Scotty says, I didn't expect to take us into combat, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, exactly, yeah, it's like you've managed to rig something that's supposed to have 400 people to be able to be run by about six. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's that's enough, yeah. In the sense that, like, Cruz is massively outgunned in that bird of prey it's much smaller but he's but he just can't believe his luck why why is this working right. like he's gonna try it but he's like why is this working he because he of course pictures there being 400 people there to his what dozen mm-hmm. yeah in the standoff that follows krug orders that one of the hostages on the surface be executed marcus is killed defending savik and spock Kirk and company feign surrender and activate the Enterprise's self-destruct sequence, killing the Klingon boarding party while the Enterprise crew transports to the planet's surface. I gotta admit, when David died and Kirk's... Klingon passage, I killed my son. Klingon passage, I killed my son. I... Got a little choked up. Yep. It was really... Really well done. What I never noticed was pretty much from when Kirk and Krug all get on like a three-way call with the people on the planet to them starting the self-destruct sequence, there is no music. Oh, is that what? I, I, they that's let where the it was. scene just, you know, and and David's death is not like he gets stabbed and there's, you know, in the string start up. It's just like the real emotion of that moment. He's dead. We got to move on. Plays out. Yeah, it's really well done. I do right. It does give the the death a sort of flat brutality. Huh. That um, and and it highlights the meaninglessness of it. Mm-hmm. Not that. I mean, they, they, there is the moment that he sacrifices himself for Savick and Spock, but the the fact that Cruz says, kill one of them, I don't care which. Yep. Tied that in with, like you said, the really the choice not to use music where I don't think there was ever a death on the original series that didn't have the music, dun, 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 <laughs> music sting after it. <laughs> yeah, to do that, you know, we have to move on. I know I have a note here about when Kirk pushes Bones away mm-hmm. later. Oh, man. And and it, he really, it just reads as, we don't, I don't have time to mourn. I am too raw at this moment. I did learn that I didn't know is Kirk missing the chair and hitting the ground was not planned. Oh, it's such a great moment. I mean, it was take five, take six, and he missed the chair because he was playing, you know, the overwhelming grief. And they can't, they ran the cameras, and that was the take. It's so good. It's, it's one so of great the when he best moments for Kirk. It's definitely his best moment in the film. Oh, see, I disagree. Oh, good. I think his best. I just like what he said at the beginning. When he, yeah, no, that's good. Yet I feel uneasy. I just feel that is the essence of why he's doing what he's doing. But that's yeah. a voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have to fall off a chair to do that voiceover. Yeah. The whole David's death sequence is, is handled really well. Handled really well in how muddy and 
real it is. There's no the the lack of music in movie scenes like this. I, I'm always so fascinated with. Well, I guess we'll just talk about it now. Well, uh, there's also no music under Cruz and. Kirk's fight later. Sure. And there it's a little odd. It's odd there. I, I I feel like there should have been once once they jumped down onto that second cliff, some music should have started. The beginning of it not having music was fine. Just I don't know, just put the a mock time music in there for crying out loud. Well, I, I do think we you know, this is Leonard Nimoy's first feature film. He would never go on, if I recall, to direct anything else that really fits in a strong, like, action-adventure kind of mold. Yep. He would direct comedies, and he would direct pieces that are are, are about characters. Mm-hmm. And those are the strong moments in this film, the comedy and the character beats. The action-adventure, even the space chases, it, it's not the most dynamic use of the camera or choices. And I think he he probably, on some level, realized that that's where his strength lay. And, you know, it's why the next film doesn't even have a proper antagonist, you know. Sure. It doesn't need it. It works fine without it. Um, works great without it. But it's it, it that sort of is not, I think, where his strengths as a director seem to lay. Right. I agree. There are two more prisoners, Admiral. Do you want them killed, too? Surrender your vessel. All right. Promising the secret of Genesis, Kirk lures Krug to the planet and has Krug beam Kirk's crew to the Klingon vessel. Just as an aside, Kirk's, you have to come down here and take it, taunting, works like a charm on Krug, just like it didn't work on Khan. Right. It's exactly the same trick, right? I have the secret of Genesis. You're going to have to bring us up there to get it. And it works on this guy because Krug is no Khan. Well, when did the Klingon and Federation signatures for the transporter become compatible. Transporter signals are compatible from from ship to ship. Doesn't matter. It's just it's just the color of the uh, transporter beam. But but no transporter technology is, seems like a kind of technology that's almost like uh, phones. If you've got one, it can talk to another phone, no problem. Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense to me. Okay. That's that. I'm I'm sure there's five books about that too. <laughs> Probably, yeah. As the Genesis planet disintegrates, Kirk and Krug engage in a fistfight. Kirk emerges victorious after kicking Krug off the cliff into the lava flow. I have had enough of you. Big splash in that Vulcan, in that lava flow. Krooge, yeah, he's wearing a, a Krooge, lot. He's wearing a lot Krooge, of armor. Krooge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that. I like that Kirk tries to save him first. Yep. No, oh, yeah. That feels like you know the right. This is what it's 1984. Like this could have been very easily gone into that sort of 80s cynical. The bad guy has to die, and we don't care kind of thing. But they remember that a Starfleet officer and a member of the Federation probably should try to save someone, even the, literally the guy who killed his son. Right. You know, or ordered the death of his son. So that, you know, there's something to that, I think. I'm pretty sure the guy who actually killed his son is the one that gets blasted uh, when he beams down. <laughs> that, that That's true, yes. <laughs> that guy's super dead. <laughs> I do have a note here. Uh, Kirk has a puffy shirt. He sure does. He's a pirate. It's pretty... It's pretty piratey. Well, um, it kept changing colors for me. Oh, no, it's, it's a hmm. lavender for... The whole movie for no, me. No, it's yeah, it's 
It's a bit pinky, but yeah. Well, I thought it was white and it turned pink when they got to the planet. No, I think it's I think it's rather pink. You um, think it's lavender, Casey? Yeah, it's a lavender pinkish color. See, I thought it was white. That's weird. Oh, I got a question. Going going way back to when uh, Spock had Ponfar and Mom, I'm sorry, there's no other way to put this. Savick totally f- Spock, right? Like, there's no no other way around that. No. He was well, only seven years old at that no, time. No, he wasn't. No, 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 he no. That's adult. when it's that. That's when when it's Eddie Redmayne guy. It who is. Looks, it is probably like twenty. Tom Far does not start until they're an adult. Every seven years, once they're an adult. Uh, well, physical adult. Yeah. yeah. I. You know, it's puberty. It's super puberty. No, I mean it's the 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 finger embrace that they show is is derived from what Sarek and his wife. Spock and Spock's mother, Amanda, what they do in Journey to Babel. Mm. And it's definitely intended to be at least some sort of intimacy and release. Um, I think the film doesn't explicitly say that they engage in intercourse. Doesn't the doesn't the novel though? The novel does, and my understanding is that the intention was that Savick would be pregnant in the next film. Right. And that was where that character arc was supposed to go. And then they just decided not to, you know, go in that direction. Which is so wild. Uh, she just mm-hmm. hangs out on Vulcan. I think a lot of why you don't see Savick, why David goes away, why you never see Carol Marcus again, was there was a sense after this film that everybody was staying for the whole franchise. You weren't going to have people wanting to leave again like Demoy did, and that people wanted to spend time with these seven people. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to spend a lot of quality time with new characters, and they didn't want to keep adding people in. I'm not in Harv Bennett's brain in 1984, 1986. That's just what I think they're probably going for, you know? Well, I think they should have brought Amanda in when Sarek comes and talks to Kirk. I believe Amanda's... I think the mother should have been... I believe Ma- Amanda's dead at this point. No, she's in the well, next she film. She shows up in four. She's in the next film. Oh, she sure is, isn't she? She is. She yes, has a she great is. scene in the next film. Oh, that's right. Never mind. If you want to talk about weird little plot holes, like the fact that, that Sara can't finagle any kind of trip to Vol- to Genesis is a little... And yet right. can can be, see the top secret thing, you know. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the Vulcan ambassador. He should be able to go there. Alright, so... Kirk and his officers take control of the Klingon ship and head to Vulcan. Now, Mom, can I ask you if you recognize the actor who plays the final Klingon? Maltz. Maltz, the, the Klingon. Yeah. Who's that? Yeah. Uh, John Larroquette. <laughs> oh! Yeah, that voice is pretty hard to disguise, isn't it? Help us or die. I do not deserve to live. Fine, I'll kill you later. This is pre-Night Court. He started on Night Court uh, in, like, the fall after this was released in June. So this was his last gig before Night Court becoming the guy who won every Emmy in the back half of the 80s. (laughs) For Dan Felding. There's Spock's Katra is reunited with his body in a dangerous procedure call. Fall Torpon. The ceremony is successful, and Spock is resurrected, alive and well, though his memories are fragmented. At Kirk's prompting, Spock recalls he would refer to Kirk as Jim and recognizes the crew as well. His friends joyfully gather around him, which is one of the smaltiest scenes in the whole movie. It is. Also, when he walks by Savick, she puts her head down. This just 
furthers my hanky panky happened on uh, Genesis between the two of them. Come on, she's bowing to it. No, he's it's so not about. No. It's about shame. She's like, mm, I can't look at you. But, well, I, I read an interview where she said that in directing her in the scene where she where she sees the resurrected Spock, that uh, he leaned in and almost whispered to her, you know, like what, imagine you were on the streets of New York and you bumped into somebody you had been intimate with. Yeah. So, I mean, they were definitely playing that. Yep. I don't want to skip over just noting how great the scene is that DeForest Kelly has with, uh, with Spock's body. <laughs> yep. When he, when he talks about how he missed him, he's, he's so good in that. You stuck this damn thing in my head. Remember, remember, now tell me what to do with it. Help me. I, we always loved DeForest Kelly, but how much he sort of blossomed under a director who he has known him for so long. Yeah, I think I, I think if Leonard Nimoy had continued with directing these movies I th- and maybe more Star Trek, I think he'd be in the canon of Jonathan Frakes and LeVar Burton. He would find, like, you look at the episodes of Next Generation on Deep Space Nine, LeVar Burton directed uh it was always the human element piece like you know who are we in in the future and frakes like to toe the line between the semi-zany episode and the high action episode um which he does perfectly together in uh first contact that is a high energy zany uh, movie that's so good. Yeah. It's just I'm wondering why Nimoy never bothered after three and four to uh, direct any. He was a major creative force on six. Right. That's his story. It's his story, but he did. Oh, I mean, I, they got what's his face back to direct it. No. But I never. I wonder if he was ever offered directing any of the uh, Next Generation. No. Maybe I did. I uh, he eventually sort of retired from directing. I do want to. We do need to note that uh, to Paul, I believe. No, to forget the character's name, who does the file tour upon. That's Dame Judith Anderson. Sure is. She came out of retirement. Which, who has yes, one of is. one of my absolute favorite credits you can ever see in a movie. Special appearance by. <laughs> yeah. It's like. Yep. Does that mean they're not going to be in next week's episode? <laughs> special <laughs> appearance is it's not like, for well, me. It's a movie. Yeah. Uh, Robin got an interview. Well, it's her first movie. Well, uh, yeah. it's not her first movie. It's but her fir- yeah. yeah, but it's her first big movie, and the other one didn't yeah. bother doing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, introducing is, is well, all that with introducing as so-and-so, that's all carefully worked out by agents and, and lawyers. And yet it says introducing Robin Curtis and Christopher Lloyd as Crooge. And like, no. No, no, no. With Christopher Lloyd. So it's introducing Robin Curtis. No. And Christopher Lloyd as Cruz. Like, that's a, to be the last one and so-and-so as such-and-such, that's a status but, thing that somebody argues but if for. You, if you, if you read it, like, in the proper English, yes. we're introducing both Robin Curtis and Christopher yeah. Lloyd. Like, hang on, guys. You didn't plan this out. <laughs> we have a disagreement on how to pronounce his Cruise. name. Cruz. Or Krug. To me, it would be Krug because it's such a harsh well, language. Well, the problem is it's only said once in the damn movie. Who says uh, it? The, his girlfriend. And she says it in Klingon, in Klingon, right? He never introduced... All Kirk knows is that some wacko Klingon 
commander is uh, trying to kill everybody. He never learns his name. Oh, well, the, the girlfriend. Talk about changing the way Klingons look. Mm-hmm. My goodness. She was hanging out there. Uh, wait till we get to Lursa and B- uh, Bator. Is that her? Lur- yeah. Uh, wait till we get to the Dura sisters. <laughs> there, there are literally uh, what I like to call cleavage windows in their uh, dresses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, yeah, that that outfit she's wearing is it's the the cleavage is a little out of hand. I'm wondering if yeah, she's a, a half Klingon. I wonder if they're like um, Belana Taurus on uh, Voyager. That's why her ridges aren't as pronounced. We're going to run into it again in five. Oh, that's right. And yeah. again in, you know, the, the, and, and, and in six is that they, they, they soft pedal the ridges because they want to maintain a certain idea of feminine glamour. I think later by Next Generation, they've sort of figured out how to... How to, you know, not how to make actresses playing female Klingons work without overdoing it, but without. Sure, you, know, you just anyway, show more of their breasts. No, yeah, right. That's <laughs> exactly how, um, the, yeah, how they do it. So, uh, oh. <laughs> two things. So, the f- a fun little thing I read was that uh, <laughs> Christopher Lloyd would, uh, would refer to um, John Larroquette playing the role of Maltz, he would call him chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer, Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. Is this the first non-Caucasian Vulcan we've met? Yes. All he's doing is banging a gong, which is slightly problematic given he's an Asian actor. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you always think of um, Tim Russ in Six as being the first time we meet a... He's not a Vulcan. He's he is a, a Vulcan. He's not a Vulcan in... No, he's not. There's a there's a freaking episode of Voyager about it. He's not a Vulcan. He's just a he's just a black dude. I thought the whole thing of that episode. I've never seen that episode of Voyager, but yeah, I thought yeah. the whole thing was that 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 was what's his nose, and he <laughs> served. No, no, it's Tuvok. not Tuvok. Uh, I mean, it's Tuvok in disguise. Okay, well, he it is Tuvok in disguise, and he's not visibly a Vulcan. Okay, yeah. but anyway, so Tim Russ in in it was the first non-white Vulcan, but this guy is actually yeah uh, guy who bangs uh, a gong. Yep. Um, a thing, a thing I wish just a lot more, um, f- you know, science fiction would do is recognize that there might be differences in skin color amongst other, amongst other humanoid races. Right. Uh, which they, they start, you know, most of the, as, as we talked about in the first episode, most of the Klingons were just problematically made brown face on the original series. And, you know, the, the female Klingon that we meet here is lighter skinned. Um, so we're getting there that way, I guess. Question mark. What about the one on Discovery? Sure, but that's post this. I'm no, talking about. We're going Which, in. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's really white. Yes. What? Well, yeah. And if, eventually, a lot of Klingon roles would be played by actors of color. Sure. Um, then including the definitive one. Worth. Uh, we'll get to him uh, and how under use he is as those movies go on. Um, yeah. I, one thing I want to point out when the, when the crew is bringing Spock off the bird of prey, uh, Savick is holding part of the, the, like the, the casket that, or whatever that's carrying Spock stretcher and, and her walks up and pretty much like pushes her out of the way. Like I've known him longer. <laughs> it was, was very so. funny. She's like, Oh, okay. I'll just, I'll just go over here now. 
Well, they're definitely they're definitely set up like a like pallbearers, right? Sure. And then the the female Vulcans that walk him down the steps. Did anyone catch? They're not holding the side of the stretcher. Their hands are on top of him, like they're using um, some sort of bizarro powers. Like let's add a new mm. powers to the Vulcans. <laughs> it was crazy. It's, I was like, wait. I rewound it like three times, and it I finally have to go back and watch this movie again to oh, pick no. up all these things. <laughs> no, I'm not only kidding. Uh, yeah, that's that is all I have. Does anyone else have any uh, parts of the movie to talk about except what is said at the end on screen uh, in text? Oh well, yes, yes. I just well, you and I discussed it. Uh, how or did we cover this about how? Um, Nimoy's name wasn't in the uh, opening credits. Yeah. And, yes. But but I mean, like I said, did people really believe that he wasn't going to come back? Since the thing was called the search for Spock. <laughs> well, it's the search no. for Spock, not Spock returns. Well, that's true. No. But but again, that comes down to like a, a sense of like, oh, can he really be second build in a movie he's in for five minutes? Well, the the interesting yeah. thing is that it's going through the, you know, the San Francisco uh, Golden Great uh, Park, which is where all that stuff is shot. But the sun uh, whites out the screen. So it's like he's the, the void of Spock not being there is being yeah. visualized. Hmm. Uh, so at the end right. of the movie, it says uh, the adventure continues. And that's all we got for uh, discussion of the movie. But as always, we have some debrief questions to go through. I'll start with the first question. Is this a good movie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Is it a good... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Someone else asked the next question. Is it good Star Trek? Yes. I think so. I think it, it it is an adventure. There's science. There is a uh, human element. There is questioning morality. All the things that make Star Trek Star Trek. When I started watching it today, it gave the ratings thing. Mm. And it said violence, something, and drugs. Drugs? Yeah. I don't remember any drugs in this. When they uh, toast for, for Spock to absent friends. That is that's drug not use. Drugs. That's alcohol. Alcohol is a drug. Yeah, but I don't think I don't think that that tends to trigger that rating. I'm trying to think. Uh, is anyone smoking in the bar? Yeah, I bet it's I bet it's somebody doing some sort of hookah or something in the bar. Oh, I and just they, thought it was weird. But, you know, mom, you say that I remember noticing it and wondering when it was coming, and then it totally went out of my head. Mm-hmm. But um, or you can I, watch it again. I, in fact, <laughs> I might. But I bet it's exactly what Casey was saying. It's some sort of like background hookah use, or, or just oh wait, the the alien that I loved in the bar isn't he smoking before he walks up to Bones? Maybe I think yeah. he is. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Um, okay. That answers that. So, Mom, is it good Star Trek? Yes. For everything yeah. that Casey said. It has everything that you would want in a Star Trek movie. And I, I think the thing, it, you know, we talked about how the first film and the second film had really, were, were both good Star Trek, but had a had really different parts of what make the formula work. Mm-hmm. I think the element that this film really gets so well is that sense of loyalty, family, you know, this this the the crew as a as a unit that is where that really it really shines there for me yeah agreed yeah uh, mom do you want to ask the next one you don't have them in front of you do you 
I do. Okay, great. Go. Would you recommend this as someone's intro to Star Trek? <sighs> no. No. Because yeah. it would be just too confusing if this is two, three, and four are an unofficial trilogy in my yeah. in my mind. Yeah. And it would be like someone going, Oh, you've never seen Star Wars? Watch The Empire Strikes Back. And everyone you'd just be sitting there half the movie going, Who the hell are these people? You know? Yeah, I agree. No, I wouldn't I, I yeah. would recommend the I'd recommend two the Wrath of Khan right. to mm-hmm. start, but not this one. Uh, yeah, I think it's just it's too much in the middle of a sequence to really understand. And you just you would miss. I mean, you don't need need to see Wrath of Khan. They recap a lot of it, sure. but you just would miss a lot of the emotional stakes of of the Kirk Spock relationship of Kirk's son. I mean, yeah. you you would never know what just watching this film that Kirk only met his son a month or two ago, right? Yep. That, Do you know what I mean? And the Kirk Drift status update. The Kirk Drift it, in this movie is high. Well, it is, and but I don't think it's the film forgetting who Kirk is. I think it's the film trying to show Kirk at possibly the most high stress point in his life. Mm-hmm. His best friend has just died. His his career is over. His son gets murdered and he blows up his ship. I think this is Kirk's inner life. In the, yeah. This is the complete yeah. transformation of the character to something totally different. But I think a lot of things after this and I think we'll get into this. I think the the JJ Abrams reboot think that the Kirk we see here, the it's such a great line. The word is no, I'm therefore going anyway. <laughs> that that is who Kirk is. Right. And I, I think this film knows that that's who Kirk is in this particular situation. Yep. But other th- people want him to be that sort of guy. And it's just, but but even uh, Admiral Morrow says to him, your career has stood for rationality and good decision making. Yep. Like he, he says, he makes a point of saying, you are not the person that the script is going to have you act like in just a few minutes. And so it points out that this is unusual behavior. Mm-hmm. And I, I, but, but I think we don't, uh, not sure we ever go back from that in the, Im, the public image of, of Jim Kirk here. And the, the I'll save, I'll on. save my reasoning in uh, the JJ ones, but I don't, I don't mind it in that for a very specific mm-hmm. reason. Um, yeah. But I, I know where you're going, yeah. but we'll talk about it. Yep. Best moment. Hmm. I made that clear. <laughs> it's the, 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 on, the, on the bridge when he's talking about an open wound. It just, that just yeah. really, that got me the first time I watched it, like two weeks ago, I thought, man, that is. And then when I watched it again, I thought, yeah, that's, that's it for me. Yeah. I'm torn. I'm torn between it being the... Um, Klingon bastards, you killed my son uh, because I literally was sitting there, and thankfully, you know, this is one of the moments where uh, my she, who is my wife, Danny, was watching it with me, and uh, I'm like, please don't turn around, please don't turn around, because you're just gonna give me all the shit for crying at this Star Trek movie. <laughs> Um, I'm torn between that and the scene between uh, unconscious Spock and uh, Bones. Those are both just top-notch scenes. I think I'm going to go with Klingon Bastard, You Killed My Son. That's oof. 
just I had such more yeah. so much more of a visceral emotional reaction to that. In the other one, I'm going, wow, DeForest Kelly's acting the crap out of the scene and doing such a good job. And David's death, I was I cried. <laughs> like yeah. I, it got me. Well then I will say uh sure. McCoy with with uh, Spock's body. Because yeah, he is it's great. Mm-hmm. It's a great it's a great scene and he he acts the hell out of it and yeah. I love that scene. Yeah. You're seeing Casey. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say is that the expression that Shatner puts out on his face are very, very, very strong. It was some very, it was some very good acting. It was, it was, yeah. it, it's up there with, with the death of Spock in Wrath of Khan. It's, it's real. Oh yeah. Where he says the most human. No, no, no the, the, his no, when Spock dies the no it's just sends a chill up my spine every time oh yeah yeah. and i liked it at the i thought the scene where he's at the end where he says of all the souls i've met across the galaxy his was the most most. and then there's that pause and he said human i thought that was very well done also human yes all right mom okay moment moment you'd cut I'm not good at this, so I don't. I can't answer. <laughs> I would cut the butthole worms that we didn't really spend a whole lot of time talking oh, yeah, about. That, yeah, that's true. They were true. gross. Ah, those. Yes, yes. And I thought it was because their little mouths he... looked like little anuses, and I was like, "Oh, that's yeah. disgusting." I don't I like need this in my he, movie. <laughs> when he squeezes it, and all the black blood comes out, mm, Danny takes was not off, a fan. <laughs> he takes it off, and his hands are clean. Oh yeah, there's no blood on. <laughs> it's like. Hello. There is a sense between that and the Targ that everybody knew how the Targ was the Klingon dog. I see, Mom, you're confusing. Um, That there was a that people knew that people liked the gross, squirmy puppet of the of the earworm into, and they're like, we need more, we need more gross things, we need more aliens. Uh, you know what would I cut? Could I just? It's not so much a moment as an outfit, and it's it's Chekhov's <laughs> little Lord Fauntleroy. Ooh, That's so, right, right. That except thing is the, the except bad. no ruffles. Worse, yeah. It was pretty bad. It Do you was. think it would have been less ridiculous in just a darker color? Is it the color mixed with the cut? Or? No, because, I mean, well, it's it's all the accoutrement because they take a lot of that stuff off. He is wearing that same basic outfit in, in the next movie, right. you'll see. Mm-hmm. But they take off the co- – he even gets the collar off by the end. You just, you just feel like there was a, like a moment between setups where – where you just Walter slid just... it off. <laughs> Walter Kennedy was like, I don't I don't know. It it was here, but it's gone. I guess we I guess Chekhov can't wear it for the rest of the movie. Oh well. Oh, well. What's that burning pile over there? Don't, nothing. Don't worry nothing, about nothing. it. Yes. Don't look in my trailer. Don't look in my trailer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Colin? Admiral status actor. Kirk. <sighs> Bones. Yeah, for me in this movie it's DeForest Kelly. We, He's got so much good stuff. I mean, everybody really gets a. This is one of things I like about the movies. Everybody gets a, a, a chance to shine, and even even yeah, even I love um, how little the little bits that Spock has at the end. Mm-hmm. But but really, DeForest Kelly has some great stuff in this movie. He plays real scary pain and some great comedy, and and that that gorgeous scene where he you know. 
only now that Spock is can't talk back and he tell him that he, you know, cares about him. Right. Uh, did you find any uh, recommended episode pairing for this? <laughs> well, I mean, we all talked about how much fun it was to see Robin Curtis in Next Generation's two-parter Gambit Part oh, 1 there and 2. there we go. That's a really interesting yeah. episode pairing. But I also think uh, one of the things that I love about this movie is all the Vulcan stuff. And so uh, a mock time or yesteryear from the animated series would both mm. make interesting episode pairings. Uh, what about Unification? Well, Unification, if you want some some good Spock. Yeah, yeah that's some great Spock. <laughs> and that's a two-parter also. Also a two-parter. Okay. That's all I got to say about this movie. Anybody got any last bits? Anything else before we... Uh... And this uh, uh, subspace transmission. We've got one more. We've got one more uh, thing we, here. For the end, rank the movies yeah. in order of oh, liking them. Well, I mean, I don't. I I don't feel like. Oh, like no reverse. Three, two, well, one. I'm gonna. I don't know what I did. Maybe I did erase my whole. I'm gonna say two, three, one. Two still top top tier for me. I. I guess. Yeah. So. I mean, my. Yeah. I, well, are we talking about just the ones we've seen or just the so ones I, we've seen? Yeah. yeah. Oh, just the one. Oh, okay. So I, yeah, this hasn't particularly changed. Maybe we I do. I do remember liking yeah. this. I mean, I, in rewatching it, sorry, I liked it a lot more than I remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I'm not sure it's going to change in my overall rankings because we still have some, some really good movies to come. And then. Maybe we should skip that until we get yeah, to maybe we'll, maybe we'll do, do it for it. each um, a franchise for uh, for Toss movies, for TNG movies, oh, yeah. and then for Kelvin Universe movies. Cool. Yeah, let's do that. So, Colin, if people want to contact you on the Subspace social media, how would they do so? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at Roll of Colin Ryan. And that's the only place you're really going to find me. Uh, okay. Uh, you can find me also on Twitter at not Ryan Casey. I'm also on Instagram at not dot Ryan Casey. We also have a Twitter for the podcast now, which is where no mom pod. So thank you very much for joining us for uh, Star Trek three, the search for Spock. Obviously the next episode we're going to do is Star Trek four, the voyage home. Or as I like to call it, Star Trek Four. Hey, look, humpback whales. Uh, this will be a fun one. Yes. Uh, I have been Captain Casey Ryan. It's your first officer, Colin Ryan. It's your Admiral Mom. <laughs> Admiral Mom. <laughs> and would you like to do the official sign-off for us, Mom? I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> do you, what, what We have? We have been. Bye. Oh, we have been and shall ever be your podcast. <laughs>